Joey Degata, mate, we are back again. A little one-on-one chat today, which I always love having with you, the property powers. And today we're talking about new versus established. And this is something that like, I don't know, I get a lot, a lot of questions about people like, oh, what about this new house and land package? What about building? What about something that's brand new? And it, it's a, it's a, it's not like a long-winded conversation, but there's a few little moving parts that kind of go into it that takes a little bit of time to explain. So hopefully we can break down those moving parts today, go into some information about why we may consider one over the other. What, what are the, the pros and cons between the two when you may consider one and not consider the other and, and sort of what Joey and I's preference would be, but um, yeah, pretty excited, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm really excited about this one as well. And I, I kind of get the same questions, but one most commonly that always gets brought up is like, Oh, do you, do you buy new for, depreciation and that, that's something that I hopefully we can kind of cover off on in, in today's chat maybe dispel that and, and as you alluded to there give the listeners a bit of a background as to what our preference is and I know we'll probably get, say it one or two times throughout the podcast this by no means is any financial advice it's just a couple of guys having a chat um, and just sharing our own personal beliefs and experiences and we don't know your circumstances your, your situation whether you're buying to live in invest whatever else so don't take anything that we say as any kind of financial advice. 100%. And I guess the, the question really surfaces for two main reasons. Firstly, you know, a new house is, is fancy. It's nice. It's new. It's got all the shiny new objects and things. And, you know, there's not a lot of maintenance and all that sort of stuff. And so there's sometimes there's a, a bit of incentive towards that. Maybe some people want to avoid doing maintenance or anything like that. They kind of like the, the shiny new thing. And then, I think secondly is it's, um, you, you know, the price point as well. Generally, you know, you may be able to get a block of land for a little bit cheaper um, sort of in the, the outskirts of the metro areas and may be able to, 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 to buy land and, and build for less cost than it would to be buying something new in the sort of inner city or even in the same areas and, um, you know, same areas, but why wouldn't you get a, a brand new one compared, uh, compared to an old one for, you know, a little bit more? And I, I guess it's going to bring up the conversation between, you know, whether you're, you're buying for a real investment purpose or if you're buying for your own sort of principal place of residence. And maybe we can we can get into that a little bit now, Joey. What would the, what would the distinction between buying your own sort of principal place of residence and, 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 and uh, an investment be the caveat for here? Well, we kind of spoke about it off air just a couple of minutes ago. And I suppose when, when you kind of put the owner occupied hat on, I suppose we, we kind of throw all of the, well, not throw all of, but most people tend to throw the investment kind of lens out the window altogether. And you're kind of driven by other things. And, and most commonly it's kind of like where your family is situated, where you're working, where your kids may be enrolled in school. We've got all these other drivers that um, really kind of take the investment play away and kind of takes the focus away from the investment side of things. Um, but I mean, if, if we're more talking about the, and we, as I said before, we have no idea where you want to live, right? And we don't know your personal circumstances and what your own drivers are. But if we, if we kind of look more in terms of the investment mindset, and if we're looking at what makes a better investment, or if we were to be choosing one or the other, because these are hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, decisions that we're making where is our money best parked and i suppose that's where we want to kind of steer the conversation towards and we're not saying don't buy new on the city fringes in a house and land package if that's where you want to live because as, as i said we don't know 
and that's your decision. But purely from a where where is your money best going to serve you best, in our opinion, um, that's kind of where the conversation is going to go to today. And Jordan, you kind of mentioned as well what what those um, new kind of dwellings are, that, and they generally are on those kind of outskirts of the city. So it's, I mean, even kind of for myself here in Sydney, even kind of Western Sydney is now formed part of Sydney Metro and it's kind of even the outskirts of Western Sydney now. So I know wherever you're listening to the podcast, you'll know those areas that we're talking about, like kind of yeah, as the the dwellings, you keep sprawling further and further away from the CBD. We now might be talking 20, 30, 40, 50, 50Ks away from the CBD, vacant blocks of land with some little kit homes um, popping up on, on there now. Jordan, do you have a kind of an example of where that might be for uh, the Victorian folk? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a fair few of them actually. And um, the, I mean, I worked for a major builder for a, a number of years, 10 years actually of my uh, co- corporate career. Uh, I loved it. It was good fun. I was doing some, some data science stuff and I got to see a lot of interesting things happen in that, in that world, in that space. And so, you know, we were essentially selling these sort of house and land estate packages. Um, you know, we, sometimes we'd buy the land, build a house and sell them. Sometimes clients would come to us and um, have their own block of land and then we build on them for them. Uh, and I guess with these sort of, with these sort of house and land packages, I guess the way they're released is these, these sort of land land release developers, um, you know, will release stages at a time. So they might sort of release stage one in this, in this massive block, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll chop them all up, have all these individual blocks and then sell them in, in stages. So they might release like 12 in a stage or something like that. And generally what's happens is, you know, these, these, these blocks, because they're sort of limited to, to 12 maximum at a time, they, they generally sell pretty quickly. Like people are like, oh, it's a new estate. Um, let's get in early. We can get at a cheap price point. Let's say that the land sold for, you know, 350 or whatever. They sold all of 12 of them in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, and then what the developers do is they go, well, you know, that land sold pretty quickly. Uh, what happens if we just split up another block, sell an, sell another 12? And then they release this sort of stage two with another 12 in them. Uh, and because stage one sold so quickly, you know, they might, oh, let's maybe sell these these lands for, for 380 now instead of 350. Uh, and so what it kind of looks like is there's been like 30K worth of capital growth within, you know, a three to six month period or whatever it, may, yeah. it might look like. And you kind of get excited or well, potential buyers might get excited by this. And it's even a, a selling point for some of these sort of house and land developers, but it's not necessarily capital growth. It's just that the developers realize that they can sell them quite quickly and for a, for a higher price range. So, uh, and then I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably get more into this, but you've got a bit of a supply issue there. If there, how many stages are available? What if there was 10 stages available of these 12, you know, there's 120 blocks out there. Um, and, and, and that kind of puts into the factor of, of an oversupply. And, and, and when we, one, you know, realistically, when you go to purchase one of these things, say you were into stage one, you got into that property, you're really happy with the build and everything like that. But in five years time, they're still releasing stage seven. Uh, and, and why wouldn't someone who wanted to come into the market rather buy a brand new property uh, in stage seven than, than buy yours that's now three or four years old uh, for the same sort of price point. So this is where, you know, there's kind of oversupply drivers come, come into play. And there's another big culprit of sort of oversupply drivers. Joey, do you want to maybe touch on that one? Yeah, it's the one that kind of hits most capital cities and it's the high rise apartment block. So they peppered all over Sydney, um, all over Melbourne, Docklands, um, and, and yeah, it was the, um, very well commented in the media around the Brisbane high rise apartment market that was kind of oversaturated a few years ago. I mean, fortunately some of the supply 
um, is starting to be absorbed and it's starting to balance out a little bit there as well. But um, for, for those kind of blocks, and we're talking hundreds of apartments in each particular unit. So kind of well-located. So like we're talking in the heart, heart, heart of the city, but um, the really the, the kind of problem behind that is that the land to asset ratio, if we're buying one of, say 400 in that high rise block, our land percentage ownership is 0.25%. Whereas if we're buying one of a boutique block of 10, our land ownership is 10%. And like, as the old saying goes, like land's what appreciates in value and the dwelling itself depreciates. So like we want to be buying the largest concentration of land that we can. And I know that obviously when we're talking about buying the biggest parcels of land as possible, uh, might not be the case for everyone. It might not be as it's achievable for everyone um, to be buying freestanding houses or a big parcel of land in the suburbs. So we understand that you might be looking to buy uh, apartments, but really important to look at the land percentage ownership of those blocks. So, I mean, not, not only in the terms of the, like the capital value and whether that's being compromised or upheld, also the rental supply. Like I just jump on there just out of curiosity, jump on like and have a look at what's for rent in Sydney CBD. And it just pages and pages and pages of ones and two bedroom units without parking. And I, I, I'd imagine the same would be the case in Melbourne and probably in Brisbane too. Oh, 100%. If you look at some of the, um, you know, the, the, the rental yields and people dropping leases at the moment over in Docklands and, you know, vacancy rates and all that sort of stuff. The, the data in, in, you know, these major hubs is, is, is pretty ridiculous, um, especially during the pandemic. And, and a lot of them are sort of student driven. So um, we want students to come in and lease out these places, as Joey was saying, sort of one bedroom, two bedroom, um, you know, they're, they're easy, they're cheap, they're accessible. But when, when you take that demand side of the equation out and you've got a massive part of this supply, it just has a significant impact on not only prices, but, you know, rental yields and, all the data that comes through. So yeah, not, not seeing a, a really nice environment over there at the moment. And I guess this is kind of one of those indications that sort of distills those, those long-term fundamentals that we always bang on about and, you know, owning, owning, you know, only owning 0.25% of the land. Uh, if you're in a, you know, if you're on a, a block of 400 uh, or, or only, only only one in, in 10, if we're, you know, if we're one in 10, we're, we own 10% of the land. So there's a, a significant distinction there um, to, b- between the two. And I think that's really critical when it does come to that sort of land to asset ratio. It's really, uh, I, I mean, it's talked about all the time, but the location does 80% of the heavy lifting. Um, and even though Melbourne CBD is, is prime location, you know, if you only own, you know, 0.25% of the land, really most of what you own is, is the building. And as we all know, the building is what depreciates in value. So over a 30 year period that that building's almost going to depreciate to zero and really you only own a tiny little bit of the land, but um, so, so we do want to. Yeah. Just, just in terms of that as well, like, like we're, we're talking like a lot about capital growth and the value and blah, 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 like, which is great, which is what I suppose the fundamentals of the conversation are. But in, in reality, let's say like whatever happened and for whatever reason you unfortunately needed to sell that property that, you owned, or for example, you have a, a rental vacancy too, you're competing against, I mean, I know we're saying one of 400, but they're, I mean, they're more than likely going to be those 400 unit blocks are more likely going to be one of hundreds of unit blocks that contain 400 units within them. So now we're talking about thousands of units 
And let's say, as I said, you need to sell the property. You're one of thousands and the properties all look the damn same. They're all about the same square meterage. They're all very, very similar. You might have like a glimpse of some kind of view, but I mean, the properties basically look the same. There's zero scarcity behind it. And you're going to have a pretty hard time trying to convince the market that your property is better than the other 300 that are on the market at the exact same time, whether it be for sale or for rent. Now, it's a, a kind of dilemma that I'd rather avoid. Um, and it's something that I've um, often spoken about with friends and family who have suggested that, that it might be a good idea. Um, and I know we're going to probably rattle off what some of those um, pros are of buying new. I, th- I think be, it's a really good what- point though. I think there's just one other thing to sort of touch on there. Like if, and you, you're right, you, it was good that you raised it because uh, let's say someone else in the same building as you wanted to sell their property and they, maybe they didn't want to sell it, but they had to sell it. They had to sell it in a circumstance that wasn't favorable, whether it be financially, something with the family, had to move overseas or whatever it might be. Maybe they needed a quick sale and they had, you know, exactly the same floor plan as you in the same building. Uh, and, and and if they had to do a quick sale and you know they discounted their price by 20 grand, 30 grand, whatever it might be, if two or three of those happen in a short amount of time, all of a sudden your property is now uh, got comparable sales with 20 or 30 grand less than you were sort of expecting. So you kind of like succumb to what everyone else's decisions are around you. And, and in the worst case scenario, whether it be, we may say we went through a major pandemic again and everyone had to sell for whatever reason, um, you know, everyone's sort of discounting and selling at the same time, then discounting further to try and get the sale done. You know, it's a really bad circumstance and, and something you can very easily get caught and, and trapped into. So a uh, really good, really good point you, you sort of touched on there, Joey. But yeah, I think there are definitely some some pros and cons on, on going the new and uh, I'll, I'll kick it off. And, you know, I think we, we touched on it beforehand, but it's really one of the pros is that de- depreciation side of things, you know, maybe a talking to an accountant or whatever it might be. And they say, okay, well, you're earning too much income. Let's get into a, uh, a, a property that's negatively geared. We can use some depreciation there and, um, you know, get some of that tax back. But I guess the way I've always thought about it, and Joey, I think you, you hold the same stance, is why would you want to spend $1 to only get 30 cents back? Like it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, so although we may be able to claim some depreciation against a new asset, um, you know, really where we may be impacting on future capital growth, but at the same time, we're only getting 30% back for something new. And uh, as we keep saying that, that de- that building is really what depreciates over time. Yeah. Like on top of that as well, at the same time, like people always forget that if you buy an established property, let's call it a house or an apartment or whatever it is, and you go in and, and do a gut renovation and completely refurbish the place then you're also going to be eligible for plenty of depreciation in, in by way of um, all the work that you've just done to the property. So depreciation isn't just for brand new property. So I want to really put that out there to the listeners from the get-go. So don't think that if you look, firstly, you shouldn't be buying just for depreciation. That should just be an outcome or a moment in time. Um, but if you have property and you've gone and done a, a complete renovation on it, there's definitely things that can be depreciated and, and we'd strongly recommend you go out and get a, uh, a tax depreciation report done. Um, generally far outweigh the costs of having the report. I don't know. I think they're about five, six, 700 bucks, something like that. Um, so well worth the money as well. So I want us to really kind of dispel that myth. Uh, but another reason why 
people would be looking towards, and, and we're mainly talking about investors here as well, um, the pros of buying that, that new shiny property is that uh, it's going to be attractive to prospective tenants, which it is. Like, there's no denying that as well. Like, if I'm looking to rent something, would I want to buy a, a little dark, dingy unit with no light and it's tucked away in the middle of nowhere, or would I want something nice, shiny, and new? Um, obviously, location is a critical factor, but um, the condition of the property is always going to be better because it's brand spanking new rather than hasn't been touched in 25 years in terms of renovation. So I kind of get that. Um, but again, like just as like that, what's that, like that new, that used car kind of, or the new car versus used car expression. Like once you drive it out of the showroom, it's now used. So as soon as you, you chuck that tenant in there, after their first lease is expired, the property's old, right? It's still secondhand. It's had someone live in it. They've had time to damage the walls and chip a window or, or, or do whatever else. So you really only sit on get the throne. That. Yeah, exactly. You really <laughs> only get that nice shininess for that kind of first hit in terms of that very first tenant that comes through. Yeah, it's a, it's a critical point. And it, you know, it kind of ties back to what we we're saying beforehand. If you're buying for owner occupier and that's what you want, you want that new shiny thing, then that's completely fine. That's your decision. You can enjoy that newness. You can enjoy the freshness. You can uh, enjoy all the, the bells and whistles that come with it. But uh, when it comes to investment mindset, you know, you're, you're, you're really paying for or someone else to enjoy all that new stuff. So great point there. And I think that the next one really is um, some good, strong government incentives. And, you know, there hasn't been anything more sort of prominent in, in that space than what we've seen over the COVID period with, you know, home builder and, some stuff that we've just seen come out with the budgets now for, for single parents, they're able to use a, a 2% deposit or something crazy. Um, and, and generally these sorts of government incentives come with some, some of those restrictions. I might, might only have to be on a new build, uh, might have to be in a purchase price under 600,000 or 700,000. And I mean, every suburb, every, every area and state's different. Um, but, but these sort of government grants come with a little, um, disclosure at the end that kind of generally pushes you towards those new builds. And the only reason they do that is because the construction industry supports like nine, 9% of all jobs in the economy or something like that. Don't, don't quote me on that. It's not an exact number, but um, it, it, uh, there's a lot of jobs out there that are derivative from the, from the, from the construction industry. So the government likes to have those incentives towards the new builds to entice the economy, to, to keep growing and keep, keep jobs in play and everything else like that. And another thing that well, it's not really a government incentive, but developers often throw out the stamp duty um, incentives that they'll cover your stamp duty or they'll guarantee you two years rent at above market value. And you see that kind of stuff run. Like there's a reason why they're doing that. Um, obviously the stocks hasn't been um, very well received by the market. Otherwise they would have sold the property for a premium and they wouldn't bother about paying for someone's stamp duty and they wouldn't, um, do any kind of rental guarantees because the property should speak for itself and should sell. Um, the reason why that you see those kind of developer concessions out there is because it's, it's, it's generally for a reason and more than likely because yeah, the, the market hasn't received it well at all. And they really want to try and sell it off without trying to drop the dollars too much and try and keep those sale prices nice and high for the rest of the building. Yeah. Spot on. And I think, you know, one of the, the final sort of, not final, but another another good pro for it for a new is it's it's usually uh, close to the to the CBD and not always you know relatively close, but at least it's sort of a a cheaper alternative to something relatively close to the CBD. So it might be fifteen k's out, might be sort of forty minutes drive out or whatever it might be, but at least you're getting sort of that brand new feeling uh, close to the CBD. Is that what you uh, 
What do you reckon, Joey? Yeah, like when we're talking about high-rise units, they're generally smack bang in in the middle of the CBDs. And then when, you, when we're talking those house and land packages, they're always going to kind of be in those commutable pockets. They're not going to be three, four hours away from from the city, or well, they might be one day, but at least for the for the short term, they're still going to be either accessible by less than an hour drive, or they're going to be close enough to a train line or something to try and get people back into the city. So. Um, yeah, some things that we definitely are about and we kind of get the rhetoric behind why people would have their head turned and, and there's plenty of marketing dollars that these big conglomerates have when they try and really market towards house and land or buying um, an apartment off the plan in a high-rise block. So we, we kind of, I, I do sympathize and I get it. And if you're kind of a bit of a green amateur investor, I, I, I see why you might be, um, I was going to say guilted in, not really guilted in, but kind of, yeah, starstruck by the nice glossy brochure. I get it. Um, but we want to really try and rattle off some of the reasons as to why we should be avoiding it. What do you reckon, Jordan? Yeah, so I think, you know, some of the the cons of getting into a new property is um, generally they're, they're a little bit more expensive than something that's existing. So, you know, what we mean there is, yeah, for the same sort of price and dollars, if you say you had a block of land available, even if you were going to knock down a an older block that's got an older property on it or whatever it might be, just say there's a land available uh, compared to something that's existing uh, and, and relatively livable. Generally, it's a little bit more expensive to get into these types of properties or to build um, or to buy something that's already built uh, because of all that sort of new stuff that, that that's gone into it. Uh, and there's, there's something else that we sort of, touch on that sort of all adds up in, in the build costs. And, you know, the, there's some additional margins there and there's additional people getting some cuts. So all these sort of things get factored into the price point. Yeah. And I, I, I love the same kind of expression. So for example, let's say there's a, there's a new, and there is, there's a new block um, being built by a developer, maybe two K's from, from where I live, brand spanking new. Um, and the two betters are going to be like starting at say eight fifty. And all of the other two betters in the suburb, they're kind of floating between six and six fifty. So, what I love to do is kind of let the the, the nice shiny new product sell for that eight fifty, those two betters, and and then drag up the residual value of the remaining seventies, eighties red brick apartments in the area. The same that those two betters, and watch the value of them glide from say six six fifty up to seven and, and low sevens. As people who want the two bed nice new product in the area and can't afford the 850 they'll just go okay well then we'll, we'll pay 700 for a two better in, in a red brick next door to it um all the while just just dragging the value of everyone who has bought well who they're yeah, just dragging the value of their properties up so let let's buy a good quality stock and let the new kind of stuff drag up the the value of the property that we're buying so it's a um a really exa- example of, of literally what i'm seeing unfold before my eyes as we speak yeah, that's a, a, a really good point. I think, you know, we've touched on it a fair few times, but not having much of that that land ownership, specifically if you're going for that apartment play. And again, there's always a big misconception out there about this sort of land size idea. Um, you know, you've got to be on a big block of land. You've got to have land, a big land component, but really it comes down to land value. So even when we're talking about sort of land ownership, you know, even when we're buying these house and land estates, 
as a, as, a, as I've said before, you know, you're really paying more for the building that's on the land than for the land itself when you're buying in these sort of outskirt outskirt land and house estates. So um, it's it's just good one to be wary that you know ultimately fundamentally in 30 years time, really people are just going to be under the, after the land that's underneath the building and the, and the the building itself is going to be depreciated. So if you compare a, a new building versus an ex existing building today. Well, in 30 years time, they're both going to be existing buildings, right? That the new building's not going to have that new fresh factor anymore. So yeah, just one good one to note there. Yeah. And, and kind of going on from that, I mean, plenty of people who kind of went through that 20, there was a little bit of a construction boom uh, in and around where I am here anyway, kind of that 2016 ish period as the market was starting to soar again, plenty of people buying off the plan apartments. Um, and then the market kind of dipped that 2018 leading up to election 2019 as some of those properties that were being built in say 2016, 17 and bought off the plan. Um, so a couple of years on as, as we were approaching settlement in 2018, 19, as the market was starting to cool, um, we, we, we kind of saw a few valuation shortfalls. Um, it happened to a previous guest of ours, um, uh, John Yacoub, who had on the show, one of his close friends um, bought a, an apartment off the plan I think they, he paid maybe seven fifty um, in twenty seventeen, and then come twenty nineteen upon settlement, the property was valued at six seventy, um, and so there was an eighty thousand dollars shortfall. And the bank was obvi banks obviously went in and did the valuation at settlement and said, "Hey, we're only lending you eighty percent of this. You need to come up with the eighty thousand dollars difference." Uh, so there was a really really tough time, and I know there was the same kind of thing happening for a few clients of, of a mortgage broker that we use. Um, he had a few clients who were kind of going through the same thing with some off the plan apartments out West. Look in, in, in the long run, it's kind of evened itself out and the properties back up to what it was worth when he, when he paid for it off the plan, but there was a good period there. And, and ultimately the bank turned around and said, we need you to come up with $80,000 and he needed to come up with it out of thin air. Otherwise he would have lost his deposit. So just another kind of thing that we really, really need to look out for. 100% such a big one. Imagine, you know, having the excitement of being able to settle on your property and then all of a sudden you got to come up with another 80K where Bang. imagine if you imagine if you couldn't come up with it, you know, what would you do in that circumstance? And and you, you might have to lose the deposit that you've already put down. So yeah, big critical one there. Um, something I touched on beforehand is, is, is margin. And the biggest one is obviously the developer's profit margin. So uh, as a developer or a builder, you know, they got to make their money somehow. They're putting a margin on top of it. And by buying a, a new property, you're essentially paying for that. Um, so just one to be really wary of, of, of um, you know, who, who's taking a cut uh, through this purchase, whether it be, you know, a person selling the property to you. There's a, maybe there's a little sales guy in a little sales box somewhere with a shiny new brochure. He's making money. The developers making money. The people who sold him the land is making money, and and you're paying for all that. So, um, just good good thing to know when you're when you're going for a new property. And then I just real lastly, I know we said it again, but just to round off, is that lack of scarcity, whether it be a high rise apartment or. Um, sprawling house and land packages out in the new greenfield areas. And, and if you can keep running for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers, uh, there is no real lack of scarcity. And as we know, that's one of the main drivers in terms of capital growth over the long run, um, having a, a kind of really desirable product um, where there is limited supply and heaps of demand for it. So, I mean, that's exactly the opposite uh, with those kind of house and land packages and those off the plan apartments. So, just a couple of things to be super mindful of. And in case the listeners haven't 
kind of picked up on what our take on new versus established is. I'm, I think it's pretty clear that both you and I lean towards, not lean towards, are heavily in the established camp. Um, we try and advise people to uh, avoid new if possible. Obviously, if you have your own agendas and that's fine, but we're, we're definitely in the established camp, Jordan. Yeah, 100%. For me, it's those freestanding existing dwellings. That's uh, primarily what I'm looking out for. And if you want a bit of a reinforcement of that, if you just wind back to our episode with Stuart Williams, we did not recently, you know, his three fundamentals was um, scarcity. So, you know, make sure there's some sort of uniqueness about it. There's not an oversupply. Uh, land value, which we've touched on a number of times today. And then that proven historical growth, which is probably something we haven't touched on significantly today, but buying that existing property, you can see how it's performed over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And obviously it's not going to be a projection of the next 10, 20, 30 years, but you can sort of use that as a bit of a, a hindsight to say, well, if it's performed that well historically, you know, it's, it's probably bound to, to perform uh, just as well or relatively well in, in the future. And you've just got that, that historical performance uh, behind you for for clarity on that purchase but mate i'm super happy with today's conversation i think we touched on some really critical points uh listeners if you enjoyed it uh we would love a five-star review if that's what you're up for um any anywhere you're listening onto the platform we, we'd love a review we really appreciate it it keeps us uh giving us drive to to continue bringing this content to you but um joey mate any sort of further notes there uh, the only other thing is if anyone's got any questions, feel free to drop them to us, the Property Powers Podcast at gmail.com. Sorry, just I'm super proud that I've just got that off by heart. So I really wanted to get it out there to the listeners. That's the Property Powers Podcast at gmail.com. Now, nah, nah, otherwise, a- all good, all good on my end. Yeah, no, that's a cracker. And I guess um, if, if the listeners, if you if you haven't been made aware now, we're starting to do some um, some analysis of people's portfolios. If you're got a little portfolio yourself and, and want to share your story, whether it be one or 20 properties, we'd be super keen to have a bit of a chat to you about it. So um, don't be scared. Don't be scared to um, shoot us an email, Joey. What was that email again? The property powers podcast at gmail.com. Send it through and uh, we can have a bit of a chat. So uh, thanks guys for listening. And, and always we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks guys.